So if you're just a one-off investor and you buy one or two facilities that at stabilization are worth a million or two million bucks, you're not really ready to go to the non-recut core side unless you can portfolio a few few facilities together to get that aggregate loan amount up to that $5 million rate. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Fernando Angelucci from Impact Self Storage. Fernando's been on the show before. We were discussing self storage investing at that time. And I actually asked him to come back on the show to give us an update on the self storage investing business and how the pandemic has impacted self storage, both more broadly and in his business in particular. And we're talking about positive and negative impacts today. So Fernando shared a lot of information. It's a very transparent interview and very helpful. I know you're going to learn a lot. I'm a big fan of self-storage as an asset class. I think the pandemic has shown some advantages and maybe some disadvantages of self-storage investing. I think more advantages than disadvantages. That's just my thought. But Fernando is very helpful today in sharing his experience both the positive and negative things that happen throughout the pandemic and what he sees in the future for self-storage investing and the economy more broadly. So very interesting interview. You're going to learn a lot today from Fernando Angelucci. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate. If you're interested in learning more and applying to join our, our Passive Investor Club for access to passive commercial real estate investment opportunities, go to investwithtaylor.com. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet, look the show up hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode straight to your mobile device every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's when we're here. That's when we're helping y'all escape the Wall Street casino. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please do share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. It's all about helping others. It's all about networking in real estate. That's one of the things, if you don't know yet, you're going to learn as a real estate investor, your network is your net worth and vice versa. Once again, our guest today is Fernando Angelucci from Impact Self Storage. A lot of great lessons today about self storage as an asset class and how the pandemic has impacted self storage, both positively and negatively, and where we stand today. Fantastic lessons. Without any further ado, here we go with Fernando. Fernando, thank you for joining us. Thank you for coming back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Taylor. It's been great talking with you so far. A little, uh, we're of the same mind on a lot of things, but for our listeners out there who don't know about you, don't know who you are, maybe they missed the first time you were on the show. Can you give us a little introduction about what you do, your business, and you know, a bit about your background? Yeah, so I'm a self-storage syndicator and developer. Got into this space after getting tired of the residential and multifamily life. I'm a son of two immigrants, came to the United States kind of with the old school American dream, which doesn't really work out anymore. You know, go <laughs> get good grades, go get a job, work there for 40 years, retire the pension. Red Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was 16 and that changed my life. And then started investing in real estate at age 21. And here I am, I'm 30 years now and just broke over $75 million in self-storage under management. That's amazing, man. I mean, that 
even within the real estate investing sphere by doing all of that, especially by the time you're 30, I mean, that's got to put you in the, the 0.01% of real estate investors in terms of, you know, assets under management for sure. With storage, it's, it's a little bit easier than say with houses or small apartment buildings. Cause you know, a small storage facility is a million dollars. And then the ones that we build from the ground up to sell to REITs, those we build for 10 to 12 million, and then we sell them for 18 to 25 million. So it's kind of skews the numbers a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I suppose, but you know, that also the numbers don't lie, right? And those, those numbers are quite big. And I want to bring you back on the show to get an update from you about how you know, the pandemic has impacted your business, either let's say positively or negatively. I'm, I'm going to guess we're going to hear positively because it's been pretty good for real estate investors so far. But you know, let, let's Let's dive into it and hear how things have gone as we approach two years to uh, stop the spread here. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I guess I will start with kind of the negative side. So anytime there is economic uncertainty, lenders immediately tighten up. So they start requiring much higher debt cover ratios. They start requiring higher down payment amounts. I believe the last large development deal that I was going out to get a loan that was affected by this was in you know, June to September of 2020. And I was going out for a $9.6 million loan on a 140,000 square foot self-storage facility. So a lot of the banks, you know, typically when we go out, banks really like self-storage. So we have, you know, a pretty good amount of lenders to choose from. And uh, it was so interesting that literally all of our lenders dropped out except for one. And that lender went from 85% loan to cost down to 80%, which is still really good. But I had to kind of play, had to keep my cards close to the vest and not let him know that he was my only option when I was <laughs> just still trying to push back on, on those, on those terms. But that, that deal ended up turning out really well. We broke around in September of 2020. I actually am, I'm about to sell that project October 22nd of 2021. So about a week and a half from when we're recording right now. So I, I built it for 10 and a half million and then I received an offer at 18 million. So it was a, it was a good turnaround. Our investors will experience around 117% internal rate of return on that one, which is not, you know, not typical. I told my investors it's going to take five years and we're going to sell it for like six 17.7 million. And here we are a year later selling it for 18. So, and I think the reason for that is these large REITs, so these large private equity firms that are typically our buyers for this type of product, they're sitting on a lot of cash and they see that a lot of cash has been pumped into the economy. So that inflation, that loss of purchasing power of the dollar is going to really start hitting pretty hard. They usually say that inflation lags the end of an expanding money supply by 18 to 24 months. So once the Fed stops pumping money into the economy, we'll have probably 18 to 24 months before interest rates and inflation catch up to that large amount of money supply. So I think a lot of the REITs and the hedge funds realize this and are trying to convert their massive cash positions, which a lot of them have really, really massive cash positions into real estate, which is a hedge against inflation and also cash flows. So there's, I mean, we're getting offers right now at anywhere between 4% to 5.5% cap rates, which is just absolutely ridiculous to me. <laughs> That's a sign of the times. Yeah, exactly. It's a sign of the times. So speaking on a more broader level, after kind of that initial turbulence of 
coronavirus really affecting the way the lenders saw the future. No one, you know, if you would have asked me when it was happening that not even self-storage, but the real estate market in general was going to, you know, double in value over the last two years. I would have said you're crazy, right? But that's what ended up happening. So just to give you some macro data around this, we like to follow TREP, which is a T-R-E-P-P. -P. It's a commercial mortgage-backed securities research firm. So this is going to be your high-level debt, it's typically non-recourse. It's longer term, typically a 10-year balloon on a 30-year AM. This is kind of the end-all be-all when it comes to refinancing large commercial portfolios. So in the first three quarters of the pandemic fully raging, once everything started shutting down, there were 1,700 CMBS loans made to self-storage. And during that, those first three quarters after the shutdown, only three of those 1,700 loans were more than 30 days delinquent. So that is a delinquency rate of 0.17%. While at that same time, multifamily was defaulting at a rate of 1,800% or 18 times that of storage. And office and medical were defaulting at a rate of like 84 to 100 times that of self-storage. So was really good, really blessed to be in this space as it I've been touting this for a long time. And I even said it on the last time I came on, you know, self-storage is known as a recession, a recession resistant asset. It does really well when the economy is not doing well because pe more people are in transition. And that's typically who our clientele are. People that are moving jobs, moving houses, downsizing, upsizing, you know, what have you. Well, I really appreciate that you, uh, I, I think you used the appropriate language there and said recession resistant rather than recession proof. I think sometimes we see folks in this space pitch any asset, self-storage, mobile home parks. I mean, I don't care what, as some kind of recession proof thing, which is absolutely ridiculous. Nothing is recession proof, right? If we have positive dynamics that can make us maybe a little more recession resistant, hey, that's great. But it's just insane to, you know, we hear folks say such and such is recession proof, which is just not possible. Nothing works that way. Right. So that's exactly what we're seeing. And as far as across the board on our actual properties, the ones that we own and operate, for a brief moment, we did see a dip in collections. It was very slight, maybe two to 3% across our entire portfolio, but we were very active and tried to stay on the front of it. So we called all of our tenants. We said, Hey, is there anything we can do to help out? Do you need us to maybe cut the payments in half? And then you could pay the rest off once you get on your feet. So we put payment plans in place and we very quickly came back up. And then very quickly after the initial shock, if you will, that hit the economy, all of a sudden our street rates started going up our occupancy rates broke above historic ceilings, which was very interesting. You know, we try to keep our properties at 89 to 92% occupancy because if we're below that, you know, we're either charging too much, we're not doing enough marketing. If we're above that, we're not charging enough. What we found is if we float in that 90% occupancy range, our NOI or net operating income is actually higher than if we were at 100% stabilization. But even with that, some of the markets we were in, we were raising rates, you know, we were going above that 92% occupancy, which triggers an automatic rent raise across our facilities. And we were doing rent raises like every four to six months. And people just kept renting. We couldn't get our occupancy down to 92%. So in some markets, we were at like 125% of market rate, 140% of market wow. rate. It was at least what I thought market rate was. It was crazy. But again, like I said, very blessed to have chosen this 
asset class and luckily was able to get out a lot of single family rentals a couple of years ago. So I didn't have to kind of deal with that side of the world. Absolutely. So you mentioned about new development, building, building new properties, and you know, that's been successful for you. But you know, some of the risks that I think we've seen maybe exposed in that way are materials prices, because we're talking about inflation here and the availability of trade labor has been difficult, right? And can you tell us about your experience there? Because you've, based on what you're saying, sounds like you've navigated those waters, but you know, that is a, one of the risks in developing new real estate. Yeah, absolutely. So let's take a step back. The reason I started developing self-storage is because kind of a la Sam Zell, if you can't buy a property below replacement cost, the your only other option is to build it, right? I don't care what the cap rate is. I don't care what the cash on cash return is. If I'm paying for an asset and I'm paying well overpaying what the replacement cost is, I can do better somewhere else. So what happened is because of all this compressing of the cap rate in the storage space, especially once you get to larger size properties, you know, 65,000 plus square feet or 80,000 plus square feet, all of a sudden I'm competing against these REITs, which were typically my buyers. And they're coming in with 4%, 5.5% cap rate, depending on the type of build and the size. And for that type of rate, I'd rather just put my money in the stock market and not have to work at all. Right. So we shifted over to developing these deals, not only to keep them, but to sell them off as well. And you're right. We got hit pretty hard with the materials prices, you know, self-storage primarily steel and concrete. Our steel prices went up like 300, 400% at, at the wow. peak. It's starting to come down a little bit, but it's still way higher than it was before the global supply chain shortages. So that was really tough. So I'm an engineer by training and, you know, thank God I was trained that way because I always plan for the worst case scenario and hope for the best. So we were putting in, before the pandemic even hit, we were putting in 30 to 40% contingencies on our materials pricing. So that helped buffer a little bit. And in areas where the cost really shot up fast, we had to then look at our plans and change them around to still produce the same amount of square footage, but maybe not as much amenities as we'd really want to, to kind of cut down on that, that construction cost. So that was one piece. Now today we are, we're putting in 50% contingencies because still, you know, we're seeing pricing go up every month, if you will, on, on construction costs, making some projects that we thought were viable in the past, no longer viable on the labor side. It's been extremely difficult. You know, working with our GCs, seeing how they build their pipeline of of subcontractors, requiring that they they sign with two or three additional subcontractors in case the first walks off the job, which has happened to us on a few projects where the literally we start paying the sub, they do work to like 30, 40 percent. And then all of a sudden we just we can't find them. They don't show up. So we need to scramble <laughs> to find somebody else. On the commercial side, it's a little bit easier because you're dealing with a, I don't want to say higher quality, but it's a little bit more professional level of labor as opposed to when you're dealing with like smaller single family or multifamily construction, just because the rates are a little bit higher, the projects are a little bit larger. So it's easier for them to come in, you know, for me to build a ground up self-storage facility, that's a 12 month project for me to build a, build a house ground up. That's like a six, maybe three to six month project, depending on what type of house. But that's been another struggle. I mean, everyone I talk to, every general contractor, every developer, labor is a huge issue right now. And honestly, I think just the only option is just to 
start paying them more uh, with less when the same amount of capital is competing for less labor just supply and demand metrics state that the price to the laborers need to go up. So once we realize that, you know, we don't get mad about our quotes getting up. That's why we build in these contingencies. My biggest thing is time. I don't really care about the price because the time is what's more expensive. You know, on these big developments, if I have a $10 million construction loan, I'm paying anywhere between 30 to 50 grand a month in interest. So if you're telling me I have to pay an extra 30 or 50 grand to get some subs that will finish a job two or three months faster than me trying to scramble to get somebody that's willing to do it at the old price that was quoted to me. It just doesn't make sense. Not only that, so that's one side, which is the debt side, but then the equity side as well. I have these investors where I give them an IRR target and I raise money based off of that target. So IRR is a net present value calculation of cash on cash return, which means the faster I get money back to my investors, the higher their IRR is. So I am more time sensitive than I am capital sensitive when it comes to these projects. And I will pay for time. If I can pay for time, I will pay for time. I'm glad that you put that in perspective with, say, the cost of debt and also brought up the IRR calculation because those delays reduce your IRR and and reduce your ability to redeploy that capital into other opportunities when they exit, even if it's a month or two delay, still impacts your return in an IRR sense. Exactly. Okay, we've talked about the, some of the risks or, the, or maybe the, I don't want to say downsides, but the downsides of yeah. what's happened in the pandemic. How about the upside? What's the good news? Yeah, I mean, there is buyers everywhere and they're paying insane prices for assets that I would never pay that mo- amount of money for. So everyone in my office knows I always have a saying, if somebody makes me an offer on one of my properties and I am not willing to pay that amount for my own property, you're de facto make- making a purchase decision, right? So if if you're not willing to buy your own asset at that new quoted price, you are now a seller. And I have been, it's funny, I usually tell people I'm more of a cash flow guy, but recently I've been a seller more than not. Some perfect examples, I know we were talking about this prior to recording, but I had a development project. It was a $10.5 million build. Told my investors, we'll sell it in five years for $17.7 million. In month 13, I got an $18 million offer. So the, the project literally isn't even done being built yet. It's two weeks away from certificate of occupancy and someone's going to offer me higher than my 100% sta- or 90% stabilized price. I'm going to take it. I have, uh, you know, that's my class A stuff. And I thought, okay, maybe it's only the class A market because all these people have a ton of money in their REITs and hedge funds, equity, you know, private equity, what have you. But then two weeks ago, I had someone come and say, hey, I want to buy your entire class C portfolio, all the mom and pop cash flowing deals. And I said, okay, I honestly wouldn't be a seller if, it, if the offer is going to be below 7% cap rate. And he's like, how about five? And I was like, I'll, I'm a, I'm a seller at 5% all day. Like <laughs> I will sell literally everything I own. Now the problem is now I'm sitting on a bunch of cash that is eroding very quickly to inflation. Where do I put that cash? Right? So that's, that's another problem that comes along. It's a good problem, but it's a problem nonetheless that comes with it. So one of the pros prices are through the roof for on-market properties. I'm going to make that caveat for on-market properties. Cause I am still, you know, we have a pretty robust marketing pipeline. I always joke around that I don't have a real estate company. I have a marketing company. (laughs) You know, we spend probably close to $150,000 a year just on direct mail to self-storage sellers. And when we get them direct without a broker in between us, we're still able to buy these deals at anywhere between seven to 10% cap rate. I'm closing on one in about two weeks at 11.2%. And it's just because you're finding, you know, uh, 
what's the word I'm looking for? It's not a perfect market like the stock market, right? It's there, there can be massive swings and arbitrage opportunities, but on the on-market side, prices are just through the roof. I mean, I it's, I've never seen something like this. The, another really good pro on this side is lenders. So because of COVID affecting certain asset classes. Now you have a lot of lenders where their portfolios are looking pretty bad and they have a lot of bad debt in a certain concentration. So what they're trying to do is balance out that portfolio. And what we've been finding, especially in the non-recourse markets is a big appetite for self-storage. So for example, working with a Morgan Stanley rep on the non-recourse side, he's willing to cash out my deals, give me 10 years on a balloon, all interest only on a 30 year AM. Wow. Right. 30 year amortization. It is non-recourse, depending on the size of the loan, the interest rate is anywhere between 2.6% to 4% interest. <laughs> and typically on the non-recourse side, you know, the lenders want to see a 12 month seasoning. So you hit stabilization, then they want you to hold it for another 12 months to prove that it truly is stabilized. Right now I'm getting offers from lenders that are willing to look at T3 financial. So only three months of stabilization. I have one lender that's willing to say, once you get to that, we'll use one month's worth of financials to extrapolate out your stabilized value, which is just absurd. Right. But understanding at a base level macroeconomics, I understand we have inflation coming down the pipeline, which means asset values are going to rise. Interest rates are also going to go up. So if I can lock in a non-recourse interest rate at that low for 10 years and then have to worry about refinancing 10 years from now when my asset most likely will be worth twice or three times what I'm I'm willing to what I, I can sell it for, then that's a good problem to have. And so what I'm trying to do right now is buy as much property as I can, stabilize it as fast as I can, and then move it to fixed rate debt for as long a period as possible. So that's on the non-recourse side. If you're willing to go recourse, there's even better options for long-term loans, primarily through the SBA, the Small Business Administration. Self-storage, not only is it real estate, but it's also considered a business. And the SBA right now, they are giving us 25-year fully amortized loans. Most of them are wanting to get some type of adjustment because it is a long period to hold a loan. So I've been able to negotiate an adjustment on the rate every five years. Um, it is recourse, but the leverage is fantastic. So on the non-recourse side, you can get up to 65 to 75% loan to value on the the SBA side, they'll give you up to 90%. Wow. And right now they're waiving the SBA guarantee fee, which is usually about 3% of the loan amount. So really good debt options out there. SBA is a really good Avenue. If you have a smaller facility, typically the non-recourse lenders want a minimum loan size of around $5 million. So if you're, you know, just a one-off investor and you buy one or two facilities that at stabilization are worth a million or 2 million bucks, you're not really ready to go to the non-recourse side, unless you can portfolio a few, few facilities together to get that aggregate loan amount up to that $5 million rate. So that's been a second pro of this whole pandemic is just the lenders readjusting their portfolios to give us. And that's how lenders do it, right? For them to entice people to get an asset class they want, they have to give really good terms for that asset class. Well, that's awesome for the investors. What's, you mentioned a couple of times the square footage of facilities in different contexts, but like what square footages are you looking at? Like how, what kind of a facility would just be too small to even think about? 
Yeah. So we have a couple different avenues in our company. So we'll look at almost every type of self-storage facility that is above 10,000 square feet because we have buyers that rely on us to find them properties because of our marketing company. So we'll wholesale out deals in the 10 to 30,000 net rentable square foot range to other investors. From 30,000 square feet and up, we are now buyers. And typically what we look to do is buy value add deals that are 35,000 square feet at a minimum that we can get up to 60 to 65,000 square feet with an expansion play and then aggregate those into larger portfolios of five to 10 properties and then move them off to the non-recourse market. As soon as you start tipping over about 65,000 square feet, I, it's very difficult for me to be a buyer because now I'm competing with the REITs and now cap rates drop literally three, 400 basis points. I, I just can't compete. So above 65-ish thousand square feet, then I'm a builder. So then I'm looking for land. I'm looking for conversion opportunities have been really good during the pandemic. So a lot of these big box retail stores went out of business, leaving behind just beautiful envelopes, right? 110,000. Here's a deal I'm doing right now. It's a 110,000 square foot Sears building. Sears as a company did a very good job of doing maintenance, preventative maintenance on their buildings. I'm buying this building for $9 a square foot. Pre-pandemic, I would have had to probably pay 50, 60 bucks a foot for this building. So that allows me to build an asset that is the same size as a ground up build. I cut the build time in half and I cut the construction cost in by about a third. So that's another way I've been mitigating the, the rising cost of construction materials is by buying a shell that's already there, already has all the mechanicals, electrical and plumbing that I need, and then just building out the lockers inside. Well, that's incredible. I, I worked at a, a Sears in high school and I'm in my thirties now. So that was a long time ago. But even at that time, I was thinking, man, this company is doomed. And I'm really, <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad to see that at least the properties are being repurposed and, and put to another use, productive use, because a big box retail is, is no matter what company it is, just does not have a great future really in, in most markets. So I'm glad to hear that's being repurposed. Yeah, we we've been we really like the Sears buildings. They trade at somewhat of a premium. This was just kind of a fluke deal that we got it so cheap because of the condition. The other ones that we really like, kind of the mid-range ones are the Walmarts. So typically the Walmart model is you set up one Walmart here and then two or three times over, you set up another Walmart. And once both of those do really well, they shut both of them down and then set up a super Walmart in between. Really? I did not so, know that. Yeah. So that's their main model. That's how they <laughs> test out if a super Walmart will make sense. So what they'll do is they'll shut down those two remaining Walmarts, the, the first ones that were testing the markets, <laughs> and then we can go pick those up. And the Walmarts are kind of like mid-tier as far as like the quality that the building is in once you buy them. But because they grow so fast and they put these things up so fast, they're usually not that old. So I'm, I'm, I have a Walmart conversion down in Texas that I'm working on. And then the lowest of the low is, is dealing with kind of the super discount stores. So Kmarts, we come across a lot of Kmarts and I've actually turned down quite a few because the building was literally falling apart. I mean, the cost to repair it was almost the same cost of me putting up a new shell. So I very rarely will transact on those types of deals, those more discount style stores. But yeah, the adaptive reuse, when we first started looking at this, maybe six months prior to the pandemic breaking out, you know, I was like, oh, this seems pretty good, you know, but at the time I was looking at maybe 50, 60 bucks a foot. It wasn't really helping. I was basically still at the same price of doing a ground up build. But then as soon as the pandemic hit and those prices got slashed by like four fifths, I'm like, okay, now I'm a, I'm an adaptive reuse buyer now. <laughs> well, it's uh, fortune favors the prepared, right? That's, that's one of the best sayings out there. Well, I love it. Sounds like things are going really well right now. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. 
Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties, not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called ground floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor, or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Fernando, I got three questions I ask every guest on the show, as you know, but you've been on the show before you've answered those questions already. I got three new ones for our returning guests. Are you ready to go? Let's do it. All right, great. First one, what is your favorite book to read for personal reasons? Yeah, I, it, this is a hard question to answer because I'm a voracious reader. I go through maybe one to three books a week. But the one recently that I've loved is uh, Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. I love the model because he basically interviews experts in their field, distills the information down to two to five pages. So it's easy to pick up, read through one or two experts, put down and walk away with a lot of actionable items. And then you can come back a day later and, and read another aspect and implement that. So that recently, that has been one of my favorite on the personal side. Nice. Okay. So we had your favorite personal book. How about second question? What is your favorite book to read for business purposes? What's your favorite business book? Yeah. So recently I've been really fascinated with biographies of real estate moguls, as well as looking at macroeconomic trends, because we are in a huge transitionary period in the United States from a macroeconomic standpoint. So I, I'm going to cheat here. I'm going to give you three books. Sam Zell's Am I Being Too Subtle? Absolutely fantastic. Teaches some amazing skills that he learned over three or four uh, real estate recessions. So that's a huge one to read. The other one is Whatever It Takes by Steve Schwarzman, who is the owner of uh, Blackstone. So hedge fund has a real estate component to it. I learned a really good information from there. And then as far as the learning kind of the macroeconomic side of things, especially going into a highly inflationary environment. I reread uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island, which it's not a short read. It's a huge book and it is maddening when you read it. I literally was getting furious. I keep catching myself like having my fists like, you know, 
flexed and tensed, but it gives a lot of really good examples of what's going on right now. The probability that we're going to see some pretty large inflation events coming down the pipe and how the Fed is manipulating the economy. So that's one side. The other side is kind of more doom and gloom. So I'm, I'm hesitant to even mention it, but James Rickards is an author that writes a lot about inflation, about fiat currency and how it affects economies. So those have been some really good books on the on the business side that I've been reading. Nice. Uh, I have not read The Creature from Jekyll Island, but it's it's interesting to kind of juxtapose, you know, my background, I have an engineering degree as well, but I also have a, a minor in economics. So I took a bunch of economics classes in college and, you know, it's I wasn't the ivory tower economics guy, but kind of what I got out of that in a broader sense is how much, how insular it is, how the, the central banking like arrangement and setup is just accepted as this is the way things need to be done. Keynesianism is the way things have to work. Otherwise, how could we possibly pay for things? How would the economies function if people had to figure out what money was? And it's interesting. I think real estate investors in particular are a lot more open to, I would say, different ideas about how, how money and value would work in like a, in a free market. So really uh, great recommendations there. And, and many of those are on my list and I'm going to have to add the other ones to my list as well. Well, my last question here for our returning guest is we're kind of hopefully coming toward the end of the pandemic, but we're not quite there yet. So where is the first place you're traveling once the pandemic is over and you're able to, you know, things are open back up again? Because that will happen someday. We're not going to be in this forever. Yeah. So I, I had some plans that I was working on prior to the pandemic that got basically shut down. One is, you know, my entire family is in Brazil, so I would love to go visit them. The second piece is that prior to Brazil, my father's side of the family came from Italy and he has never been to Italy. So wow. hopefully he doesn't listen to this podcast because I'm going to surprise him with a trip to Italy. But that's going to be number two is take him through the old country. We're going to go up and down the coasts, visit all like kind of the small areas. I recently did a DNA test and I found specifically where in Italy his families are from. So it's going to be pretty cool to go and find some other Angelucci's out there. Awesome. Awesome. I love Italy. It's my favorite place I've ever been, been a couple of times and fully intend to uh, go back in the future. So that is that is definitely a great choice. And it's been great catching up with you once again. And thank you for the update about how the pandemic has impacted and, and in a way benefited your business or in many ways benefited your business. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, they want to learn more about your, what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? Yeah. So I typically point people to social media and our websites, right? Impact self-storage, Titan Wealth Group. But what I found is that's too many steps and people, I, I lose people on some of those <laughs> steps there. So I'm going to do something crazy in the podcast world. I'm going to give out my cell phone number. Whoa, hey. It's area code 630-408- 8090. Uh, that is my real phone number. You can text me, you can call me. I found this works a lot better. People end up reaching out. So if you want to learn about storage or if you have a storage deal, you want me to put some eyes on to help you out, just give me a call and I'll, I'll be more than happy to, to work through that with you. Great. Well, it's been great talking with you once again to everybody out there. Thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content 
and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. That way you'll catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. And just so you know, we do live stream these interviews on YouTube as well. So be sure to look us up, subscribe to the channel, and you can catch us there in the future. Appreciate you tuning in today. Look forward to talking with you on the next one. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Take care.